So yesterday on August 4th, I was sent an article in regards to the Lambda variant and the actual title of that article was, should the Lambda variant worry you? Question mark. Not if you're vaccinated, period. I guess I said that with more of an exclamation point, but whatever, you get the idea. Uh, I read through most of the article. There's some interesting points. I'll, I'll get to those in a minute. It's a pretty short article, a quick read. I, I shared the link. I cannot read it any longer online, but I did copy and paste all of it. So if you are unable to read it and are interested in the entire article, please let me know. The link is in my presentation notes. So I started investigating this article like I would any other article that I read. And in all fairness, I have a little bit of a bias. If this article had been written by the New York Times or the Washington Post, I probably would have just checked to see if they actually sourced the reports or studies or whatever they were referring to, which they generally don't. But this is a news outlet I had not heard of before called Barron's. And apparently it's a financial news outlet. They give, it, it looks pretty highbrow financial, certainly above my general head. I don't generally read financial articles. It's not my area of expertise or interest really. So it's def, it, it makes sense that maybe I hadn't encountered this particular um, outlet before, but it was weird because I did, I, I did check the media bias, a couple media bias. It was, it was a little hard to research this. This seems to be kind of a um, not as popular publication. Uh, it's certainly not part of the mainstream media as far as uh, ease of information about it. And the media bias seems to think it's mostly center or a little right of center. And on the higher factual level, that is subjective as well. But it, get, it you get an idea that this is probably something that is considered more of a conservative magazine. Anytime you're dealing with money, one could argue it's probably going to lean that way in general. So that was the first weird thing that struck me is why would a financial outlet be publishing an article about the Lambda variant unless there was some sort of financial information involved, which there was not. So then I check out the author, which is also something I generally do. In most news articles online, you can just hyperlink to the author and find their name. And I always dig a little deeper than whatever the outlet says about them. But uh, so I, I do have the author. His name's uh, Bill Alpert. I have his LinkedIn page and his webpage that uh, is part of my uh, presentation notes. and But I wanted to read a little bit of what they say about him because... I think it's interesting that he wrote this article once I read this. This is from his own webpage. Bill Alpert is a senior writer at Barron's, the Dow Jones Business and Financial Weekly, where since 1984, he has published nerdy feature stories, columns, and investigative projects of use to investors. His, ex his exposés have inspired regulatory reforms in diverse areas such as, quote, backdoor, end quote, stock exchange listings, one, for-profit colleges, two, Magnistica Act uh, that sanctioned those 
involved in the death of Russian whistleblower Sergei Magnitsky. I don't know. I'm not familiar with the story and certainly not familiar with the pronunciation of his name. And other human rights abusers. The, it goes on. There's other things where he's been a big part of apparent. His exposés have broken through on some big topics that seem important. But he's writing about the virus right now. And it was just a little, it was weird. Because there's some problems with this <laughs> article in general. Uh, the first is that the photo image is not a photo. It looks like a photo, but it's a photo illustration. We don't actually have a photo of the virus up close. I did manage to find some like electron microscope pictures. So there's a link to that in the presentation. It, it kind of looks like what we're seeing as the big photo for the virus, but you should take a look at the link and judge for yourself how accurate of a depiction we're getting of this virus. But the other thing that really kind of caught my eye about this photo is if you look at it, not on your phone, but like on a computer screen where you can see everything, everything in the background uh, appears to be Greek letters, which, you know, kind of harkens back to the Delta variant and now the Lambda variant. So I guess it's, you know, all Greek to me. But, you know, whatever, they're clearly trying to give us a visual image that... Yeah, this is going to keep going. Lots of variants to come uh, is the impression that I keep getting, certainly from the mainstream media. Then uh, the next thing I had a little problem with, not as much as I normally do. I have to admit, as uh, news articles go, this one didn't have as much flexible language in it that I have encountered in the past. But it's certainly um, something that is notable that I thought that I would point out a few of the words. There's words like seems, suggests, slightly more. And I just want to talk a minute about flexible language. If you're reading a news article and it says could be, should happen, might result in, there's all kinds of what I call flexible language that I used a lot uh, when interacting with customers when I couldn't give them a solid answer, but... Everything indicated that your order is going to be shipping on time, that kind of thing. Everything I see tells me that we have nothing to worry about. I'm expecting this to ship by whatever date. Like, it's all flexible language. And I'm, I'm not saying that I was purposely being deceptive, but there was a level of deception involved because I didn't have the hard facts. I think that giving yourself a little bit of an out so you're not making a promise that you can't keep when you're talking to a customer and you're just kind of dealing with the information being presented to you about where their order is in the process is far different than the facts that we're supposed to be getting from the news. I don't think the news should be able to give us flexible language. I, I, I don't think they should. If you can't say, I can show you how this is true, you shouldn't be reporting on it. But that's just me. This article is not that bad. In that um, aspect, certainly not as bad as some of them that I've read from other outlets, but it's something to be noted. There was some of that in here, and it's something that you should always look out for. So we've got two, so they basically the evidence that you're okay from the Lambda vi uh, variant as long as you're vaccinated is coming from two points of evidence, and they're both from pre-published non-peer-reviewed 
studies that are both listed on the same page, which really is when stuff gets kind of good. But let's just talk about real quick the two different uh, studies that we're interacting with. The first was posted on the 28th of July, which means that he's reporting on a pre-published non-peer-reviewed study that is on what's considered an open source, we'll get to that in a second, indicating that basically the Lambda variant is far more infectious. And it mentions, it, this is where I learned, this article is where I learned that there are variants of interest, which apparently there are a few, and also where I learned that there are variants of concern which Delta is considered a variant of concern, and Lambda is considered based on, uh, based on the World Health Organization in June, a variant of interest. But we're, we're pumping it up right now. So we learned that in the first one. And in the second one, the second article, or sorry, the study that was uh, uploaded on 7-2, so July 2nd, 2021, so about a month before-ish, give or take a few days. Also, not currently peer-reviewed or published in any medical type of journal. Uh, this is, there's a little bit in here. It says, the Lambda spike protein contains novel mutations within the receptors binding dominant. And then it says L452Q and F490S. I'm guessing... That's some, these things are well over my head as well. I'm not a scientist, so I was just trying to understand. It says that may contribute to its increase in transmissibility and could result in susceptibility to reinfection or reduction in protection uh, provided by current vaccines. So uh, I'm not sure how he's claiming that means it's okay, but I don't know that that's how I read that. So you could check it out for yourself. Um, I also have the PDFs versions in case they're not available or it's not saying what I said. So they both came from this website that's called BioArchives, BioArchive, which is spelled B-I-O-R-X-I-V. And apparently there was a, an archive like this too, which we'll talk about a little bit later, which is... I think is a good time to let them tell you a little bit about themselves. So let's give them a second to do that. Imagine if there was somewhere you could submit a paper and within 24 hours, anyone could read and cite it. Now imagine it was all free. Free for authors, free for readers. And anyone could join the discussion. So basically this is... Um, Per the website, BioArchives is a free online archive and distribution, distribution service for unpublished preprints in the life sciences. It is operated by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, a not-for-profit research and educational institute by posting preprints on BioArchives. Authors are able to make their findings immediately available to the scientific community 
and receive feedback on draft manuscripts before they are submitted to journals, which, I mean, I can see some value in this a little bit, get some feedback from some of the folks that you might be interested prior to submitting it to folks that are going to be super critical. I just recently had somebody do a little editing on my book and it's, you know, you want to put out a good product and, but critique is hard and it's difficult to be told maybe you got something wrong, but their uh, website goes on to say articles are not peer reviewed, edited or typeset before being posted online. However, all articles undergo a basic screening process for offensive and or non-scientific content and for material that might pose a health or biosecurity risk and are checked for plagiarism. No endorsement of an article's uh, methods, uh, assumptions, conclusions, or scientific quality of uh, by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory is implied by its appearance in BioArchive. I think that is wild that... So basically, they're like, it's here, and not only is it here, but these articles, these studies, or whatever, are being used as proof of evidence that we should just buy into. So I needed to look into this a little more. Uh, there's a link about peer review. I don't. I have not been through this process myself, but I know people who have. I know that there's some... Uh, there is a good process. I looked into it a little bit. I found a pretty interesting article, not too long of a read, that there's a link to that kind of explains the process. If you're curious about peer review, it I thought it was a easy for me to understand general overview of how that works. But then I found that we actually have a yearly conference or congress, actually, a peer review congress, and they were talking about bioarchive in 2017 and in particular a gentleman named Sergi last name Sergi I can't pronounce his first name was uh, very did a whole presentation on it and I clipped a few things that I thought were of interest so let's start with why are preprints a thing many many publications over the past few years have shown that scientific um research has not been up to par as far as quality is concerned. Um, one of the ways we can mitigate that is obviously by improving and innovating in peer review, uh, but peer review does not come without its limitations. So preprints arose to save the day, and uh, the most popular preprint repository in biology is BioArchive. So this project that I will be presenting today arose by our own ignorance in what is BioArchive. I mean, who publishes in BioArchive? Do people pay attention to preprints? Do they ever get published? Do they hear journals when they do? So I think he's asking some good questions, and I certainly would ask these type of questions about why preprint would be something we would want easy access to on the internet. And, and I guess the next thing I would ask is... Uh, how does this all figure in? So he gives us a brief history of preprint. Let's listen to that. I'll, I'll start with some vocabulary first, just to be absolutely sure that everyone is on the same page. Um, a preprint is the version of a paper that has not yet reached peer-reviewed publication. 
Um, preprints were actually proposed very early on in the 1900s, but were first uh, convincingly uh, done by archive in 1990s. And then in the 2000s, the first uh, repositories specific to biology arose. Now, BioArchive was established in 2013 by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And since then, it has established itself as by far the most popular such repository. So we have the most prolific, arguably, option available to us. But how well did it do to begin with? Probably not that well. He gives us a kind of an idea. It exponentially grew, etc. It's just wild to me. But then he talks about how long it takes from the time that an article or study might be posted on BioArchive till it becomes something that is peer-reviewed and possibly ready for publication in a medical journal. Let's talk about that. However, if you see on your left, only roughly 23% of the preprints published or uploaded to BioArchive in 2016 actually have been published. And that's because if you look to your right, it takes roughly six to nine months from availability to BioArchive to eventual publication. So as a quick reminder, this is from 2017. So he's talking about only 20% of the studies that had been posted the prior year have already gone into publication because it takes six to nine months. So Okay, that's a long time for the media cycle to get a hold of some stuff, one could argue. And also, how does having a preprint versus something that's published in an article go? And, you know, and how do those relate? And he talks about that a little bit too, and I think it's interesting. Let's give that a listen. The last thing we wanted to do, though, is something else, even cooler. So we said, okay. Let's take those articles from the canonical literature that have been a previous preprint and compare them to articles from the same subject area in the same journal at the same time and see whether they receive a kind of different attention. Um, to do that, we identified a random sample from our initial um, signatures of specific journals, times, and issues. And we eventually ended up with roughly 340 preprints matched to roughly one to five um, non-X preprints. And the results are here. So what we found was really surprising, to me at least. It seems that if an article has been on BioArchive, when it gets published, it receives a lot more attention than articles that had never been on BioArchive. In fact, on average, the preprint is in the top 30% as far as Altmetric is concerned, whereas articles that had never been on BioArchive are in the top 50%. That's mainly driven by Twitter. But you can also see, if you avoid Altmetric and just look at citations taken from Crossref, even as far as citations are concerned, X preprints tend to receive more citations than non-X preprints. So my understanding is, is that if an article goes into this bio archive and it's a preprint article, all of a sudden it has a higher level of citations and um, sharing throughout the internet and data universe, apparently particularly Twitter, 
I thought that was incredibly interesting because these articles and studies are not peer-reviewed, which means basically anything can happen. But let's get an idea of what his what he was his points he was trying to make because uh, then there's a question and answer after that's also kind of interesting. Um, in what we did, there were a huge amount of limitations. And the three most important, as far as I'm concerned, is that BioArchive is an evolving platform. So what applies today may not apply tomorrow. Um, two, the association that we saw with BioArchive and being an ex-preprint um, is most probably confounded by other factors. And number three, BioArchive represents mostly uh, papers from disciplines such as bioinformatics and genomics, and those may not um, generalize well to other disciplines. So take-home messages. BioArchive is quite popular and rapidly evolving. Preprints on BioArchive attract significant attention, and they eventually reach canonical publication. And when they do, they tend to receive more attention than articles that had never been on BioArchive. He had earlier talked about the fact that there were three main disciplines that a vast majority of the articles and studies that were posted on BioArchive, which is, again, he says it in a way that sounds like he's saying BioArchive, but it's B-I-O-R-X-I-V, BioArchive. There, that there's basically some concerns, and this is back in 2017. But then there's a question and answer, which I hinted to a minute ago, and I think that it's a good time for us to listen to that. Okay, and then my second question was, are there any measures or ways to look at or thoughts about how to look at, I mean, we, we talk about the preprint as if it's just a, an early version of the published paper, but what the differences actually are between a preprint and a published paper in terms of the science it's in it, does it change through peer review or does it not? I mean, mm -hmm. how do, any thoughts about how we might start to look at that? I don't know about you, but that seems like one of the most important questions that we should be asking is how much changes between the preprint and the published in a medical journal type of art, article or study. Because he said it takes six to nine months in general uh, he did say also, I didn't clip it, you can, again, see this entire 15-minute speech on your own if you want. The link is in the show notes. But that like 60% of these pre-printed articles end up uh, being published. But I think his answer and her pushback is well worth listening to. Yeah, that, that'd be a, a definitely a really good thing to do. Uh, from my experience, the, at least the title, it really doesn't change that much at all. Um, we haven't studied whether the actual science in the paper changes, and that would be great to do and probably future um, work for us. I just have to interrupt real quick here and ask, did he say they haven't even studied whether the science changes between the pre-printed and the published articles? Because that might be a little relevant, in my opinion but she pushes back. Because I'm just curious when we talk about like more Twitter, more social media, is that about, I mean, in some cases, the science can change a lot. And is it tweeting and social media about the preprint science or the published paper science? Or do, does nobody care if they're different? Or, and how do we think about that then? Uh, you know, what is the, I mean, otherwise we could then really do away with peer review if the preprint is identical in most cases to the published paper and it hasn't changed. Um, I would like to suggest that we don't get away with peer review because that gets 
reviewed by people who are actually experts in the same field. And if you haven't checked out the link that I posted earlier, do that now. I can't peer review a medical document. Can you? Let's see what he has to say about that. Yeah, we, it, we don't need to do much then beyond the preprint. <laughs> it depends a lot on the authors as well. Different people may use BioArchive very differently. For example, some people go through lots of versions of their preprint, whereas others go through one version. And also some people even upload their preprint on BioArchive after actually its publication. Mm -hmm. yeah. So as you can see, different people use it very differently. This is basically the end of the um, presentation, but I'd like to point out that he doesn't uh, come back to the point that only 50 to 60% of the articles are ever printed, which means 40 to 50% of them are not, which means if we get away with peer review, we are relying on pre-printed material, basically, which I uh, think is not a good idea based on my understanding of how the peer review process goes. But I'm just a layman. However, I was a little curious about how this free source program worked because it's hard to have something just out there available for free unless somebody's funding it. And that is when I found the rabbit hole that was a little bit of a surprise to me because apparently there is a Chan Zuckerberg initiative and Let's, let's just start with the fact that this organization's been around since about the same time as uh, BioArchive. And I think there's a few clips that I can play from the horse's mouth and also from an outsider's point of view who seems to have a vested interest. So where should I start with that? I guess we're going to start with Safian's, I don't know how to say his name, his clips. And right out the gate, he makes sure to inform us that this is very different than the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So let's listen to that. Very different organization than, than Bill Gates'. Bill Gates' is a foundation, right? A traditional foundation. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is actually a limited liability corporation. Right. Okay, there are subsets of it that are uh, 501c3s and 4s so that they can do grant making and advocacy. But uh, they also have hired 125 engineers and technology folks. They are building product. They are building software as a way to try to uh, improve things in the world according to their vision of it. They do venture investing. I mean, this is a, a, a startup in a way that is different. One can argue not that different because I did take a look at the grants and there are a ton of them. They are putting a lot of money out there in grants. So, and they're doing glasses and stuff in schools and stuff with prisons. And we'll get into that a little more. It's all over the place. But the huge thing that apparently the Chan Zuckerberg initiative has on the docket is to get rid of disease. And this is what, uh, his name is Bob Safran. He used to be the editor for Fast Company for like 12 years. He left in uh, January of 2018. This interview is from October of 2018. So this is also a little bit older but he's speaking on behalf 
of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative about some of their lofty goals. They have some very lofty goals, though. They do. They do very ambitious goals. Why, why don't you tell the audience, for those who like, don't know? Like uh, a, a small Like eradicating thing, uh, well, like everything. What they say is cure, manage, or treat all disease by the end of this century. So disease mm -hmm. goes away. Right. Right. That is that is one of their goals. And it's it does sound uh, quite hyperbolic. Uh, on the other hand, what they say is, well, you go back 80 years and, you know, there's so many things we didn't know. We didn't even have penicillin right there. So many changes. And if you look at if you can accelerate the pace of scientific discovery between now and then, uh, this is a possibility. But he also talks a little bit about how they are balancing work and life and who's actually in charge. And I think that's also notable. Both uh, Priscilla and Mark are yes. working relatively full time, I think. So how, how is this sort of divvied up in terms of just the day to day? Yes. So Priscilla is the one who is running uh, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative full time. She's working on that full time now. She okay. is there. She is there all the time. Mark is there uh, one day a week. They also have their own uh, business one-on-one -on -one as business partners, where they uh, sort of prepare and strategize. You're, you're getting a look on your face that says you're not sure, right? Yes, they, they've tried to set things up so that they can separate their personal life from their work life. I have to admit, I was a little bit entertained because while um, Safian, or Saf, it's, it's S-A-F-I-A-N, Bob Safian, was talking, the camera was on him, and he mentioned that people had a look on their face. This is CN or CSNBC. I don't watch the news. I don't know who the other uh, people are that are talking to him. But I did really like this next section where we get to hear, for the second time, the word accelerate. But we're going to listen to it one more time real quick from the clip that I played just a couple seconds or a couple minutes ago. Uh, just so you can remember that the word accelerate is very important to them. If you can accelerate the pace of scientific discovery. So let's talk some acceleration and uh, maybe some fundage at the same time. The, the size of this initiative, though, is staggering. I mean, it's the si the funding is what, 45 billion Yeah, it's now actually dollars? up to 60 billion. And, 60 and, billion. and I always like to say, this is not, when you think of it as a startup, this is not a valuation, right? This is assets that they have to put to work, $60 billion. I mean, no one has ever had that kind of resource, right? At the same time, they do talk about how $60 billion, as much money as it is, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the money being spent by governments and uh, other entities globally to address issues like health care and education and things like that that they're trying to address. And so they're trying to use the leverage of what they can do that isn't being done otherwise. And that's why they're focused uh, so much on software, on building the kinds of tools that can accelerate activity in these areas that other folks aren't funding. Did you catch it again? Because apparently acceleration is very important. But I also was very curious because um, while that interview was going on on the screen, which you can watch, there's a YouTube link to it. They were saying $45 billion. I wondered where that happened from. And so then I found a... Uh, CBS morning in the morning or something like that with Gail King interview that happened to be with the two, both uh, Mark and Priscilla for the first time ever on their fourth anniversary of their new company. Here's that introduction for you. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan, nothing dumb about them, want to expand their reach beyond the social media empire. 
Their philanthropic company turns four years old today. That It's awarding millions of dollars to projects like eliminating all disease, transforming criminal justice, and improving equity in education. We spoke with them at the offices of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative for their first ever joint network TV interview about what they want to accomplish. And they think big. This is a package. Um, that was the introduction. I watched the entire video. I think it's about eight minutes long or so. And what I found most interesting is that the big things that we found out is about Facebook. So before we get into the $45 billion and where that number came from, remember it was $45 billion when he asked, and all of a sudden now it's $60 billion. Don't know where that extra $15 billion came from. I'll have to look into that further, but let's find out what kind of things they were talking about back in uh, around the same time, 2019. Uh, this was December 3rd of 2019 that they finally got out on the road together talking about Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. You lead a company that has great power and great influence. Should one person or one company have that much power? So I think that the basic answer to what you're saying is no. You Honestly, say no. Yeah. yeah. Private companies should not uh, be in the position of making so many important decisions balancing different social values that we all care about. I think the real answer is for there to be um, regulation. I'm sorry, what, Mark? You want more regulation? That seems surprising based on the fact that you're perfectly fine censoring people for things that are basically just opinions. But let's see if there's any clarity from Gail, who mostly lobs softballs. But let's just see. Mark, you say you welcome regulation. People say, I'll give you some regulation. Let's break up Facebook. Well, I think that there are real issues. I think a lot of people are upset and are, are talking about measures um, like breaking up the company that aren't actually going to fix these issues, yeah. right? I mean, breaking up Facebook isn't going to address the, the question of political discourse. Maybe I forgot what the point of the interview was, but did he just try to say that Facebook isn't causing any political discourse right now? Because I don't know about you, but uh, my Facebook page is very political and there is a very defining line. I feel um, there's some pressure not to say things there because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Although I disagree with a lot of people, I, I'm lots of different ideas uh, for different reasons and uh, there's no good way for me to express that on that particular media because if I were to tell people what I really thought they would block me or I would be in Facebook jail which I have to say I'm proud that I have never been in Facebook jail apparently I'm not lewd enough or political enough for anybody to throw me in there yet. But what about that $45 billion? Let's find out where that came from. Mm -hmm. But there aren't that many that have the capability to build tools to empower uh, different folks who are on the front lines. Teachers, doctors, scientists, we don't have the right tools to do that. And Mark has such incredible experience of building tools. Building those tools won't be cheap. 
So the couple has promised to give the initiative 99% of their personal wealth, mostly in the form of Facebook stock. At the time of the launch, that was worth about $45 billion. Hold on. These folks have kids, and they're giving away 99% of their personal wealth, but sinking most of their stocks from Facebook into this new initiative? Hmm. That sounds a little fishy to me, but, you know, maybe I'm not the only one who thinks so. And also, I like that somebody else called Gail out. 99% of their personal wealth yes. going to that foundation. A lot That's of a lot of dollars. That's a lot of dollars. There are those that, that say it should go it. into taxes, though, on the Democratic mm -hmm. side. Did the wealth tax come up at all? <clears throat> well, I was talking to them. Yes. No, it didn't come did up. Not come <laughs> no. up. No. no, I didn't bring that up. All right, just kidding. Covered yeah. a lot of ground. Yeah, we covered a lot. Okay. We can't talk about everything, no, Tony, no, no, but next no. time if they do it, I will bring it up, I promise. I don't know if y'all heard it here first or if she actually followed through on her promise, but... Uh, we got Gail King saying that she promises to ask about the wealth tax to the Zuckerbergs the next time that they talk to her, they, or she talks to them, however that works. I Lots of shit can be said about me as a person, as a woman, as all kinds of things, a wife. But one thing that would be a tough sell is to say that I'm not a woman of my word. Uh, if I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it pretty much uh, with all the flexible language possible. We'll get it done or have some understanding of why I can't. So, Gail, in case anybody cares, I'm calling you out. I hope the next time that you did an interview, I didn't dig that deep into the rabbit hole. I was like, oh, okay, I got to stop somewhere. But you definitely, for sure promise that you'd ask the next time we heard you so here are some of my takeaways from what happened here uh mostly questions which is how i generally function in life why is a financial publication writing a story about this without trying or without tying a financial aspect into it and okay so i guess it's a good time for me to like swing back to the story of the lambda variant that was written in The Barons by a guy who is mostly a nerdy, whistle-blowing, you know, calling people out and writing exposés that help investors kind of guy. Why are we getting this story about how you're fine if you're vaccinated from the Lambda variant? I'm, I'm curious why, why they're running a story like this. And the second question I, I had, oh, was why would this author do it, which is I've already addressed. Like, this author doesn't write these kind of articles. There was no tie-in to the financial aspect of anything. He just apparently wrote it because he was uh, on board. He's been working for Barron since 1984, although his LinkedIn suggests there's some uh, breaks in that, but we'll just ignore that for right now because his webpage says that he's been writing for them since 1984. Maybe as a contract writer or a piece writer, who knows? And the third question I have is why would this media outlet allow non peer reviewed open source studies to be the only source of evidence for the article to claim? 
You're a money magazine. You're going on preprint shit that hasn't even been peer-reviewed. Why are you supporting this? What do you have in the game? What skin do you have in the game? This is the question I have. And the final question that came up uh, simply because I ran down the rabbit hole a little bit is why is the Chan Zuckerberg initiative got their hands in so many pots? I, it, I literally had to stop myself. I hate when I use the word literally, but there were so many, the A's of the grants were out of control. I could not figure out how they had been funding uh, or when they started funding uh, BioArchive, which I did find an article in nature.com that it looks like it was from 2017, somewhere like in February, somewhere in that neighborhood that talks about them being funded. And there was a bunch of other interesting articles related to that. So I have a link. I think it was called Extra Collection that has some interesting articles that about the Chan Zuckerberg in initiative. But uh, the big kind of overall weird aha or whatever that I'm after revisiting all this information I'm that I'm asking myself is why is a company that's super excited about accelerating things funding a open source preprint where it's available for citing and sourcing and news articles are sourcing it um, type of venture or platform and why is a business you know a financial magazine writing like a pretty lame piece about the basically what that or get the vaccine that's it get the vaccine type of punchline even though they don't actually say that it's kind of the underlying current of the, the article so i guess that's what i got to say today i do work on a value for value platform i if you feel like anything i do or anything you get out of this is uh valuable to you and you'd like to help fund some of the time and energy and resources I put into doing this type of stuff. Uh, the link to my that page is also in the show notes. And tell me what you got to say and what you think about all of this. And if you have any other information, please feel free to share that as well. Y'all take it easy now. We'll talk to you soon.